Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. Um, so today we will be talking about Phantomina, or Love in a Maze, uh, is the subtitle, which is Eliza Haywood 1725 short story or novella, depending on who you talk to. The short story wasn't quite a thing at that point in time. And it, it's about, uh, you'll see, um, it's about feminine <laughs> desire and sexuality. It's about consent, uh, about rape, seduction, character, class. Uh, it, it, it's got a lot going on in about 30 pages or so, <laughs> to, to, say, to say the least. So, uh, so Katie, why, why did you uh, want to or at least agree to, <laughs> to read this with me? <laughs> uh, did you hear the 30 pages part? Yes. Um, it, it, it is, you, you could do it in an hour, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's 30 pages. So, uh, yeah. So, I was interested to read this because... I think consent in the 18th and 19th centuries are really interesting. Uh, that was like my project in grad school, which is so it's like really interesting to me, but it wasn't interesting enough for me not to drop out. So, you know, like, <laughs> and you do made, it that way, you and will. And you made the right call, I, uh, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Just piece the fuck out of there. Yeah, so I am legitimately interested in this topic. And this work is short, but it does a ton with ideas about consent, which again, we'll talk about. It's extremely fucking weird. I would describe it, I think the best thing I could come up with was that it's sort of like the Dana Carvey movie Master of Disguise plus Orphan Black, the BBC show about the lady who is a bunch of identical ladies, and also Mrs. Doubtfire. Right, yep. That's like yeah. that's you put that in a blender and you get Fantomina. Uh, also, a uh, film that stages uh, uncomfortable and awful questions about consent. I have to say, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> precisely, yeah. So yeah, so there's a lot of like there are a lot of these really serious questions about sex and consent that are dressed up in this as like really silly, which is a weird, which is like a weird and I think like productive thing that's going on so it's a comedy where like a lot of fucked up shit happens it's also to me it's very contemporary uh for reasons that aren't just the content but also like the romance they're like every every single rom-com is about somebody getting tricked Mm -hmm. like every every damn one so it's so it's that it's also that i think maybe one of the best things about it is that it introduces into the into the better red than dead universe a new kind of fail son (laughs) which this dude definitely is he is the i don't know what happened all the blood rushed out of my brain and into my dick horny guy Mm -hmm. so i'm excited to talk about that yeah, uh, cool. No, a- absolutely. And yeah, the uh, you mentioned it is like a, a, every ro- or every rom com uses some version of the kind of uh, the artifice that is like underneath this. Yeah, uh, the, the rom com is an extremely fucked up genre politically. You know, it really is. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Uh, it's like uh, yeah, all the, every like kind of grand romantic gesture in it. It's it, yeah, it just tramples all over consent, all over the agency of like the woman. You know, it's uh, yeah, it, it's. It, it's it's not good it's not good <laughs> it's not it's not good folks we don't like it. um but yeah so uh no i, I agree with all that and uh katie i wanted uh to read this on the show because i need you to help me figure out what it is actually about um 
<laughs> I've uh, I've been trying for years. I've taught this text, uh, you know, quite a few times. Uh, and and every time that I think I have it down, like, okay, I get what Haywood really wants us to understand from this. Um, I go back through it and my take just does like a 180. So I'll be like, oh, cool. This is like a radical narrative about feminine agency and rebellion. Um, oh, shit. Actually, I think it's depressingly reactionary at the polar opposite of any of that. Um, and, and, you know, sort of every kind of opinion in between, too. Um, and, and, you know, sort of that incidentally uh, characterizes basically all of the scholarly discourse around this story. Um, also, Haywood herself is super fascinating and important. Um, I would say that, and you know, I think scholars at this point in time agree with this. She's as important to the early English novel as Defoe or Fielding. Um, but she was kind of forgotten about from the middle of the 18th century in, until well into the 20th, like kind of with this sort of uh, surge of feminist scholarship in the 1970s. And, you know, I, for all kinds of reasons, I think some that have a, a lot to do with gender and, you know, uh, ideas about what a woman novelist was, quote, supposed uh, to talk about. Um, and we can get into that. Um, but Phantomine itself is, I think, just a really interesting and kind of fraught story. Um, it's certainly a text uh, that contemporary discourses of consent and gender have a ton to say to, as, as we've kind of indicated. Um, and it also poses lots of uh, questions about enlightenment understandings of character and, and identity, um, and I want to clarify again, like identity, as I'm using it now, um, it, it's sort of like um, how you are understood as like a distinct bounded subject in your own right and in the world rather than like a type or like a, a kind of, of person um, uh, or a category. The boundaries of the subject, I think, are problematized here. You know, Fantamina, she seduces this dipshit Beauplaisir over and over again, basically by changing her makeup a little bit and putting on a different dress. Um, and he thinks that he's having sex with four different different people right <laughs> like um, <laughs> hey, Tr- hey tristan have you ever seen she's all that where they take her glasses off and straighten her hair and then she's hot yeah, yeah no right Ex- like that. yes it, it, yeah, it, it, exactly exactly and so that's why and you know part of that kind of lineage that you're to, to the kind of rom-com that you're talking about is why i i don't you know i don't think it's it's supposed to be absurd probably that he you know is completely clueless who this person is but i, I don't know i just feel like we can do a little bit more within oh it's just a joke about what a dipshit this guy is i, th- I think it's that plus some other things too <laughs> that seems like the equation um, so today we are going to be talking about identity and subjecthood and character. We are going to be talking about gender uh, and constructions of gender and desire. Uh, we're going to be talking about how this uh, story stages and deals with issues of consent. Um, and we're going to be talking about the ending and uh, the degree to which we do or don't want to read uh, a kind of like moral didacticism as, as part of Phantomina's project. So I will do the summary. It's it's actually fairly straightforward, but it is I don't know, it's 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 bonkers as well. <laughs> so, okay. So Fatimina is the story of a young woman aristocrat who seduces a young man aristocrat and gigantic doofus, as as Katie said, uh, named Beau Plaisir. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> um, just over and over again in various disguises. You know, she as a sex worker uh, or, you know, as a prostitute or courtesan in 18th century parlance. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to use the the modern term. A sex worker, um, a maid, a widow, um, and a masked woman at a masquerade ball, um, that extremely horny 18th century uh, phenomenon. <laughs> uh, very eyes wide shut. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
And by the way, Fantamina is not supposed to be her, quote, real name. The only identification Haywood gives us as to her true identity, remembering again, she is a word object, not an actual person of the world, is that she is a young lady of distinguished birth, beauty, wit, and spirit. Yes, uh, indeed. And we know that she grew up in the country um, and that this is her first experience with London. And she's kind of left to her own devices in a way that is pretty atypical for young women in 18th century texts, um, or at least later 18th century texts, which I can say more on in a bit. So the young lady is at a play and she notices where all the sex workers are hanging out in the pit area and how many gentlemen are flirting with them or, and trying to hire them for, for sex. Um and she's curious, the, quoting from the novel or the, the story. The greater was her wonder that men, some of whom she knew were accounted to have wit, should have taste so very depraved. In other words, there's something she finds really exciting and titillating about, about all this uh, and, and the kind of like dirtiness or, or prescription of it. And so she decides, hey, I'm going to dress like one of these women. And she calls herself Fantamina in this guise. She comes to the theater the next night. She sits where the other uh, courtesans slash sex workers are sitting and has a crowd of men trying to hire her, including Beau Plaisir, uh, who she actually knows and who she's had a crush on. We are told that, quote, she had often seen him in the drawing room, had talked with him, but then her quality and reputed virtue kept him from using her with that freedom she now expected he would do, and had discovered something in him which had made her often think she should not be displeased if he would abate some part of his reserve. Um, well, well, well. Indeed. So, I mean, it is like it, it, from the outset, it's like that he, I mean, she, she very quickly, as we'll see, becomes like the object of his desire. And in a way that I think sort of there is a very kind of patriarchal male gaze at the center of this. But we get there first, I think, by an acknowledgement of her desire for him, which I, and I think that is important, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Okay. So Beau Placier sees her um, being an idiot. Uh, he has no idea who she is, doesn't recognize her at all because she has a different dress and her hairstyle slightly different. Uh, <laughs> and he, he tries to hire her for, for, for sex. She successfully shoes him away the first night by saying that another gentleman has engaged her. Uh, but promises to see him the following night. Um, and he's totally fine with that because, again, he, th he thinks that she's a sex worker. Um, and that's just the, that's the nature of the game. And she rents her own quarters for this meeting, thinking that it will offer, quote, more security to her honor. They meet up here after the play and Beau Placer rapes her. That's the story. Uh, puts it just, you know, very succinctly in fine, she was undone. He's also begun to su suspect briefly that she is not a sex worker, both because of how she tried to kind of fight him off uh, as, as he's trying to like, you know, per, uh, purchase her, her services. And because she seems richer than he had originally thought, like she, you know, she has her own uh, quarter, she won't let him pay for dinner, um, which he thinks is like weird. <laughs> so he, he offers her gold and she refuses saying, no, my dear Beau Plaisir, your love alone can compensate for the shame you have involved me in. Be you sincere and constant. And I hereafter shall perhaps be satisfied with my fate and forgive myself the folly that betrayed me to you. So at this point, they start on a fairly lengthy affair and series of sexual encounters until Beau Plaisir gets bored, which Haywood describes as basically characteristic of masculine sexuality. Quote again from the story. He varied not so much from his sex as to be able to prolong desire to any great length after possession. The rifled charms of Fatimina soon lost their poignancy and grew tasteless and insipid. But Fatimina thinks no matter. I'll just make him hot for me again by uh, making him think I'm an entirely different woman. And it works over and over and over again. Uh, <laughs> she follows him to Bath, where she pretends to be a maid, and they have sex. She makes him think she's a widow traveling to London, and they have sex. She meets him as incognita. 
um, which I kind of wait. Don't tell me what happens. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> yes, incognita. Uh, it's wearing a mask, uh, and, and and they have sex. Um, and uh, by the way, I, when I read incognita, I can't help but think of the Simpsons episode where the guy who looks like Homer but is not Homer walks into Moe's bar, and he's like, "Hello, I am Guy Incognito," <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, right, Homer, get out of here." And then it turns out it actually wasn't Homer. So like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time i just kept thinking i do all my browsing in incognito mode yeah yeah yes right the incognito browser yes for for perusing the dark web uh <laughs> <laughs> okay so at this point uh Fanamina is really into this power she has over this dipshit you know uh, and, and and she does view it as power um and and one that other women who are kind of trapped within the confines of authorized marriages and the, that kind of like sort of sexual relationship um don't have um you know at one point Plazer in a letter to Incognita signs himself your everlasting slave. And, and Fantamina applauds, quote, her own strength of genius and force of resolution, which by such unthought of ways could triumph over her lover's inconstancy and render that very temper, which to other women is the greatest curse, a means to make herself more blessed by these arts of passing on him as a new mistress whenever the ardor which alone makes a love a blessing begins to diminish for the former one. I have him always raving, wild, impatient, longing, dying. It's very extremely horny. horny. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it is. I think that the, the horniness is very much the point. I think. Um, but of course this being 18th century fiction, uh, rather than a restoration play where, you know, fucking doesn't necessarily need to get punished. We, we can't leave the story here. Uh, it turns out Fantamina is pregnant. She has to tell her mother that Beau Plazier is the father Fantamina is shipped off to a convent in France. The end. The end. And, and I would just say, like, so we'll get into a little bit how that ending, like, okay, so the ending presents itself as her comeuppance, like the punishment for these misdeeds, uh, you know, which basically like having desire uh, and, and fucking outside of uh, outside of marriage. Um but and, and I think more importantly, like just having explicitly stated desire. I mean, that that's a thing that like in the 18th century novel and in a lot of the kind of emerging bourgeois discourses of femininity, it's not that's not supposed to be a thing that's acknowledged. So I think that that is like sort of her original sin that as she has one. But I don't know, like the Eddie to me has always it's like I this this gives a lot of wiggle room for the reader to imagine that this isn't actually a punishment. Um, something the introduction to the, the Broadview edition, which I read, makes quite clear is that the convent in the early um, English sort of amatory novel was an extremely horny place of a lot of fucking at a lot of very horny nuns. So and, and like, we're not told, you know, that so and we're not told that like, you know, basically there was no fucking there. So like, I think we're, we're sort of, you know, readers of this genre would kind of be primed to imagine that there probably was so but we can talk about that a little. Well, I'm glad she lived to fuck another day. Yeah, Well, I mean, that's, you know, sometimes you don't see that in these kind of no, stories. No, you don't. And I have to say that, like, I I, as a reader, if I don't imagine the ending this way, it becomes extremely bleak and like oppressively fucked up of a text. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. So I, I, I kind of choose to read it that way, but uh, I don't know that we're supposed to. And I think we should talk about that. It'd be a real, it'd be a real bait and switch. It would be a real bait and switch. (laughs) So, okay. So I'll just, I'll, I'll briefly give a little bit of context around this and then we can get into our sort of specific questions about it um so i got I, I as i read this i'm thinking of kind of two big 18th century discourses here to to help us with the ideas and ideologies that the story might be expressing the first i think you know very clearly relates to gender as i alluded to earlier this story has been read 
both as a fairly radical and proto-feminist narrative because, one, it acknowledges that feminine sexual desire is a real thing, and two, it imagines forms of feminine power that not only stand outside of misogynistic and patriarchal boundaries, but sort of try to take control of those very boundaries and, and redeploy them uh, to, to their own ends. But it's also been read as deeply reactionary, and I think for very good reason, right? Like, it imagines a woman protagonist in love with her rapist and kind of repeatedly trying to seduce her rapist. And, you know, who does ostensibly get punished at the end of the narrative and whose desire is always in some kind of thrall or mediated through the desire of the male object. And we're not going to solve that debate today, um, but I do think we can open up some of those various readings um, and, you know, maybe in favor of the radical potential of this. I would just say that, you know, this is a transgressive text, as much of Haywood's fiction was. She's part of a genre called amatory fiction, um, which was dominated largely by women writers like Haywood in the early 18th century, that was a lot more focused on illicit themes of sex and sexuality than what became the kind of authorized sort of canonical novel tradition. And even though amatory fiction is doing very novelly kind of things, like, you know, thinking about interior psychology and the realism of the everyday. By the mid-18th century, it, it is kind of, the amatory novel is kind of excised from the narrative about the rise of the novel more generally. Tristan, yes. I, not, I hate to embarrass you, but I think it's pronounced masturbatory. Masturbatory. <laughs> no, it, yes, it, absolutely. Megan informs me that we have a reader uh, or a listener request to uh, read Fanny Hill this season on the show. Uh, which is which oh. which is pornography, right? Like there was 18th century I, pornography. <laughs> thanks to the listener. That will be No, fun. it will be. I, I'm very much looking forward to that. And, and in no small part because there's actually a lot of really kind of exciting scholarship around uh, early modern and, and 18th century uh, pornography, um, which relates in very interesting ways to kind of like enlightenment discourses. But like, you know, so like something like Fanny Hill is, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely meant to be masturbatory. Amatory fiction is supposed to do the same thing. It's supposed, but it has the kind of cover of respectability where like, well, that's not really what you're doing, even though that is exactly what people we're dealing with this, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and and Haywood, you know, um, she, uh, you know, she was an actor, she was a playwright. So we don't know much about her biography, um, in part because she asked her letters to be destroyed, um, which I think is kind of interesting and, and understandable. But she, you know, she uh, she seems to have left one marriage uh, and had you know a series of affairs. Um, so, I mean, she herself did not seem to want to abide in any way by patriarchalist bourgeois sort of logics. So it would be, it would seem weird to me if this story of hers is like that, that like reified patriarchalism is ultimately its point, you know? <laughs> yes. I think that would be odd. <laughs> it would be out of character. It would be, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, good. Yes. Uh, yes. Mm. <laughs> um, but okay. And so, so that's one one big discourse. The other one has to do with how 18th century fiction and enlightenment ideology figures identity and character. And I said at the beginning, I don't think that we're supposed to just chalk Fantamina's success in duping Beauplazaire up to his dipshittery. I do think this text wants to imagine being able to step into and out of various identities and, you know, personhoods or subjecthoods as easily as maybe changing your clothes and your makeup. And I, but I also think that reflects a real 18th century anxiety. So for many centuries, clothing had indicated 
class and social station and ironclad ways. Uh, you know, textiles were expensive, dyes were expensive, and there were also what were called sartorial laws that forbade you from wearing clothes that weren't those of your class. That, but that's markedly changing um, in the 18th century with technological innovations and imperial capital. Actually, shout out to my old dissertation committee member, uh, Tim Campbell, who's done a ton of scholarship on this. And, you know, that produced uh, the attendant fears you might expect. Like, how do you know someone's class position by looking at them? Maybe you can anymore. And in fiction, this in part registers in the shift from type, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, typology, which is all about exterior signifying everything to character where we're imagining psychological depth and interiority. Um, and that's a discourse I do think is present here uh, in ways that are both deeply gendered, but also that don't totally align with femininity and masculinity. All right. So, but like, we're definitely going to talk a lot about gender and consent and agency. Um, but I, I thought maybe that question about like, what like how identity as like kind of distinct personhood is a thing might be a good place to start because um, Katie, you actually, I think have a very different, um, but I think correct take on um, what this, uh, this novella short story is doing with that. You know, Fantamina can just fool Beau Plazer with these disguises over and over again. That wasn't the way I have thought about it, but I think that you are like, I'm, I'm convinced in a lot of ways by, by your reading. Um, so, so what do you like, what do you think is happening with that? Like, how do you think the fact that we're just uh, like, you know, she put, on a different dress and changes her hair and suddenly it's like oh i have no idea who you are can we fuck <laughs> i'm gonna use that line uh but Tris- <laughs> no idea that's, that's good tinder profile fun. material right <laughs> we don't know yeah, each other no, super actually that's the tinder tagline i think right <laughs> <laughs> yep that's the whole thing don't give it to him for free there don draper <laughs> Uh, but for, first, the first thing I want to say uh, to you is uh, thank you so much for liking my takes. This one, you know, I just I just want to say my gratitude for the take liking is just, you know, it's kind of it's, it's yeah, great. Uh, yeah, it's, and I it's, appreciate it's, it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I will always acknowledge a good hot take. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But so here's here's the take it question. So you're. Your question, I think, was what do we do with the fact that this she dr- draws on a little tiny mustache and he has no idea who the fuck yes. she is. And so I think that part of it is so that this is possible in a way because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. When he's interacting with a woman who he's only interested in fucking, he sees the relationship as temporary anyway he he's not that concerned with her identity period right. there's another layer of it that gets added on it's complicated by the fact that that her class position is always as any of these characters except for the one who is like just never described in any terms and just like fucks him in a mask mm-hmm. are always uh of lower social status than than her regular like wearing a bunch of jewels uh and going to the ball self and there's one moment actually where uh he sees her at the opera i think or some fucking stupid ass play what do people do for fun <laughs> and he's like you know she looks a lot like this woman that i fucked right. like what it's really it's it's nuts how much she looks like her this woman looks just like this woman that i fucked and then she she throws him off the scent by saying oh i was born 
like I'm from so and so town. And he's like, oh, I've never been there, so I must not know her. <laughs> anyway, let me get back to trying to fuck her. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, no, I. Th- so there's just yeah. his willingness to accept these, accept the easy, the 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 most absurd, uh, like excuse for not wondering if he knows right. her. You know? No, and, and and yeah, and and I, I the, like I think that that's really I think that's really uh, sharp and like <clears throat> because I like that he like his interest in her is like entirely ab- about about sex, right? Like I mean, it's it's entirely about about fucking. Um, in a way that like I you know, but I like I, I mean, one question I do think we need to like stage is like, is her interest in him really that different? You, you know what I mean? Like. So, right. because, you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the acknowledging that, 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 yeah, I mean, just interest in fucking like as fucking is, is part of like female sexuality and desire. Um, and in, in ways that maybe are not so distant, uh, but also very distant in other ways from, from masculine desire, um, I think is a big part of what's happening here. But, but so like, he only wants to relate to her is, as, as like in, in terms of like an object, like a subject object, like he's the subject, she's object like that. And as object, he's only interested in like the, the most like superficial layer of exteriority right so like yeah okay so she changes in a way that's like good enough her uh you're like you know did it she looks different enough her um you know her her appearance and like that's good at, like he has no interest or doesn't even think to like interrogate any further it's like you know what i mean yes um, yes i think the subject object thing that you are saying is really helpful to me because it works on two levels. So like I think about this and what she's doing as a sort of science experiment. Like she's trying to see if she can make this guy stay in love with her. And so in a way it's like, yeah, she's pulling all the levers and he is the experimental subject. He is the subject of her experiment, but he's also like the one who gets to have a consistent identity. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, right. So, so like if we want to think of, of like what she's doing as um, a strategy of resistance or rebellion um, against sort of these patriarchal structures, which I think it, it absolutely is at certainly at, at one level that like, yeah, her ability to sort of inscribe him in the object role because he is like her experimental like object, right. That, 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 that is, that, that is uh yeah. I mean, that is partially what she's trying to do is to kind of push him into a sort of similar kind of like object position, but you're right that he, like there there's a way in which because he's a man that uh he's able to sort of like retain his like the the, the, the stability of his subjecthood in a way that she is not like because she has to keep changing her sort of like at least outward appearance of character and identity yeah and there's a there's a place where where she is uh a widow a fancy widow yeah. lady and she t- talks about uh, he, he or it's in his head, I think, that he says like I'm going to handle this one a little differently than I handled the others, you know, because this is this is a widow lady. Yes, and then he proceeds to do the exact same boob honking that he does at the initial stages of of meeting each version. Yes. Yes, that's right, and, and and yeah, the widow is. I mean, yeah, I think we could, we should talk about the widow specifically, because um, well, something you said that like she like um, her the characters that she puts on are always ones of a kind of lower uh, cl- or more marginalized class position than is her actual class position as a member of the kind of um, you know upper gentry or aristocracy. It's whatever, like she kind of at the pinnacle of of sort of uh, English society. 
Um, and, and so like one thing that that was making me think that like there, there's a narrative, um, uh, uh, you know, among people who study gender in the 18th century, that with the emergence of a kind of bourgeois and sort of modern seeming construction of gender, that what was gendered was the feminine, because like the masculine was always presumed to be the sort of universal default Right. That like that, like that, that to, to, to be a gentleman, you essentially like the, the code of behavior is sort of the same throughout. It, it also is the same in a way that kind of like most men, even those who aren't like, you know, of the, the rank to be a gentleman are kind of pulled into. There's just like a, a way of being a man that is set and standard. But with with women, on the other hand, it, it is much more particularized. Right. Like, I mean, you know, women who are who are not who are not members of the aristocracy or the gentry, like they they were, you know, they, they don't just don't have the same relationship to like this emerging domestic concept, you know, they work like the idea, like what we see in Beauplazaire, like the presumption that they would be like, a, a, you know, an appropriate sex object that you, you know, that you could have sex with outside of the confines of marriage, that that's like a thing that is like certainly not a part of aristocratic or bourgeois femininity. And, and so that, right. So that like her, you know, her ability to take on these, these disguises, I, I don't know, it, it sort of like relates to that and maybe pushes against that in some way, or, or it's a way of like taking control over that, like uh, particularization. Um, yeah. So what you're saying about the code of behavior for mm-hmm. men is it being sort of like universal. So and, and the one for women being particular, it accomplishes that in the most interesting mm-hmm. way. So it's never said what Beauplazaire is supposed to be, but it's said that she is supposed to be virtuous and what vir- and virtue is totally reducible to whether you've had sex yes. or not. Yes. And that's like so. It said what they're saying is virtue, but they leave out all the virtues except the one virtue. Yeah. Um, right. It, uh, yeah. So I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think that's just like a strange. It, right. It is. And, I and, think and it, for 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 men because like virtue was also like a a concept that is is you know that is emerging for men too in this time within them in a way that's like distinct from like previous things. I mean, there's a whole other big discourse like honor and things like that. But like. For Right. It's like, okay, like, yeah, you're not supposed to be fucking outside the confines of marriage. But if you do, particularly if it's with like a sex worker, like it's probably okay. As as long as like, you know, you don't do that your whole life. And like you, you are like an honorable gentleman in these other ways. Whereas like for woman, yeah, you're right. It's entirely reducible to like, do you have sex outside of marriage or not? And if you do, your virtue's gone in a way that's completely irrecoverable. Your virtue, yes, your virtue can be lost, and so can your mm-hmm. honor for yeah. men. But that, but virtue's private and honor's public. Yes, so yeah. like that's right. And yeah, and you can lose your virtue or your honor, but you can't lose your character. You can just get a bad. Yes, one. that's right. That's right. Um, but yes, and so like why why I kind of started us down this line was uh, you you mentioned the widow bloomer. Like what's interesting there is that relative to fa- the Fantamina persona who's a sex worker, or relative to uh, the maid Celia, the, the widow is supposed to be. I mean, she's like she's in a has a somewhat precarious class position because essentially, like when her husband died, like her his friend is going to like uh, the the story that she creates is that um, her fr- his friend is like trying to get her husband's fortune. So like she's in a precarious class position but having been a married woman and having been a member of the upper classes whether bourgeois or aristocratic she should have a kind of protection or stability in a way that some of the other personas don't and yet 
she still like you know she does like for Bo Plazaire still ultimately feels uh, enabled to um to to have sex with her um in in a way that I like I you know I think people always like sort of uh, talk about the rape scene as being the one with Fantamina where she like explicitly says no like there's it, it, consent not being given is very explicit on the surface of the text but um I mean another thing that you were pointing out before we started Katie that I I think you're also very right about is that there are a lot of other encounters in this where like you know we don't we don't see like consent kind of clearly given and i think and i think with the with the widow that would be one of them as well yeah but but so so with the the, the fact that the widow does have this class position um doesn't seem to doesn't seem to all that much change the way Beauplazaire thinks that he can sort of relate to her and ultimately have kind of sexual power over yeah yes so here's here's a question for you do you think that her going back and forth through all these identities she has the money to do it all like that's how you know that's how rich she is she has the money to be a rich lady she has the money to pretend to be a slightly less rich lady and then she has the money to rent a whole house so she can pretend yeah to be I, yeah poor. i mean i think that the and again i mean like that i i don't think this is a st- short story novella that is all that interested in character and sort of like a deeply interiorized way. But, but I think, but yeah, like to the extent that it, like she is supposed to have this, we're supposed to imagine these things outside of the text. I would say so. Yes. That like, I, I do think that she's supposed to be quite wealthy to the extent that she has kind of unlimited resources to pursue this sort of scheme or game that she, she is kind of running or or experiment as you put it with Bopo's air. Yeah. She's also a real sicko. So should, I mean, should we talk about and and we can think about like how what happens with the widow, and then also what happens with Incognita, um, how these relate to each other. But should we talk about that that scene, which is kind of you know the the the, the rape scene, um, that like what what it is that it signifies. And again, I I want to like be very clear. Phantomina here is a word object. We are not imagining or saying that the text itself is making any claims about like a real woman in the world. Um, that this is a, this is a, char- a fictional character. That it is like, and so like um, the conceptual life of this fictional character is essentially what is the text is trying to do with with these forms. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I don't know, like how like how do you read that scene? Like what? So the the setup again, like you know, she's seen the the kind of sex workers uh, and the the gentlemen at the theater. She decides to dress as a, a courtesan. Um, you know, Bo Plazaire says, can I hire you? Essentially, she says, yes. Uh, they, they go to this place that she's rented. Um, and he's like, okay, well, I, you know, let, I'd, I'd like to, we'd like, let, let's get, let's get it on. Um, and she said, she says, no, uh, you know, repeatedly. Um, he said, well, I, we can actually, maybe we should read the, 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 the moments leading right up to that. The, the, she was undone bit. Uh, so she, she had now gone too far to retreat. He was bold. He was resolute. She fearful, confused, altogether unprepared to resist in such encounters, and rendered more so by the extreme liking she had to him. Shocked, however, at the apprehension of really losing her honor, she struggled all she could and was just going to reveal the whole secret of her name and quality, when the thoughts of the liberty he had taken with her and those he still continued to prosecute prevented her with representing the danger of being exposed and the whole affair made a theme for public ridicule. Thus much indeed she told him that she was a virgin and had assumed this manner of behavior only to engage him, but that he little regarded, or if he had, would have been far from obliging him to desist, 
Nay, in the present burning eagerness of desire, tis probable that he had been acquainted both with who and what she really was. The knowledge of her birth would not have influenced him with respect sufficient to have curbed the wild exuberance of his luxurious wishes or made him in that longing, the, uh, that impatient moment, change the form of his addresses. In fine, she was undone, and he gained a victory so highly rapturous that had he known over whom scarce could he have triumphed more, her tears, however, and the distraction she appeared in after the ruinous ecstasy was passed, as it heightened his wonder, so it abated his satisfaction. He could not imagine for what reason a woman, who, if she intended not to be a mistress, had counterfeited the part of one and taken so much pains to engage him, should lament a consequence which she could not but expect until the last test seemed inclined to grant and was both surprised and troubled at the mystery. Yeah, so what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck is right? So the first, the first time I read this, I thought, oh, fuck, this is just, you know, this is sort of like what's going on in her head in this rape scene. What's, what's strange about it, though, is that it does take pains to still say, like, to highlight her desire but also then her sadness and and so i think that to me it brings to mind the question of who is telling the story and the reason i ask that is because throughout in these these odd moments it will be in parentheticals she thought to herself Mm -hmm. or she said to herself Mm -hmm. which calls attention to the narrator in a way that doesn't isn't necessarily needed no it's not that yeah that that's a really good point that it is it is a it is at some kind of remove um it, it's it's almost like free indirect discoursey a little bit in a way which like jesus i mean that's you know jane austen's supposed to be doing that a hundred years later you know that <laughs> um but you're right but like yeah like because it yeah it, it flags the like the narrator but yet we don't really get the narrator as its own character. You know what I mean? So it's like, it, so, so it's, it's like it, 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 you're, I think you're right. It gestures towards this question of who's telling the story, but without really giving us much at all to figure out, okay, so where is this narrative position coming from? Um, and that like, I don't know, or that maybe it's, it's, it's the social that's doing this like, you know, and, and that, you know, so that like in one way, um, Phantomina is being read, it is some kind of way that would support social belief and expectation. And and the reason I say that is because it is like, and and we see this like later in the story where she's like, you know, she's basically like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that like, this remains my secret. Like that I I'm all these different women, like that that she's really like, and, and she's like, if I can keep any sort of public report of this from appearing, I can do whatever the fuck I want. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. She does, yes, she says stuff, or the, the the narrator says stuff like, she does these things that, that you'd never be able to believe someone yes. could do, which is not tell anyone. Yes. And I, th- I think, like, number one is not tell anyone, and number two is, like, also fucking don't yes. tell Yes, yeah. So it's like, it's doing something, so there's something about the presence of the social, but there's, there, there both is... The social world is so highlighted in this because we have these women from different class positions and we have these, you know, how how to how are men and women supposed to relate in this time? But then we also have the total absence of the social because she can't tell anyone anything about anything. Right. Yes. It, 
So again, more confusion, no answers. Right. Yeah, and I right, and and that yeah, and 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 should she tell anyone that so she'll any of the kind of action like sort of um the actualities of what's happened, she's gonna yeah, I mean she's gonna lose everything. In in like leaning so hard on her desire leading up to this scene and then her desire after her continuing desire after this scene in a way that fuels her her putting on these various guises and trying to like reenact the seduction moment again and again like it, it so in flagging mm-hmm. it, it like that i think that that underscores what it wants to understand like her like what her fear is leading up to the the the, the rape where you know like shocked however at the apprehension of really losing her honor that like what she does seem like most kind of afraid of in this has to do with like the the, the sociality and the kind of public report of it, right? Or is that not right? Mm-hmm. No, I think so. I think so. I I do. I think there's yeah. No, I think that's right. Yeah. Which and, and I but I do want to say like I like I think that even in the terms like the 1720s novella, this is supposed to be a rape, right? Like I mean I I don't I I I actually yeah. think that like a modern reader and you know like. Haywood or readers at the time would would be in agreement of that. I, I think that the, the 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 sort of like I would be curious to see is like what exactly that means as like signal like you know what what the what the violent what what the nature of the violence is whether that has shifted uh, over the centuries. But like one thing I would say, and you know this adds a whole like kind of fraught you know set of questions to this. But um, there is a line of scholarship on on Fantomina that's like yes, I mean it is quite clear that you know she does not say yes in this moment. Moment, you know quite it says no repeatedly but that like this sort of like social mores and kind of strictures on feminine sexuality do not offer a space for her to say yes you know what I, and, and so like mm-hmm. part of what she's doing in these various disguises is trying to create that kind of space uh for for herself where she actually can kind of express desire but like i mean and, and i think that that's true but at the same time, I also think that the way in which Beau Plazaire just like wholly rides over her like kind of her her refusals and protests here is like, you know, I, I don't think that's it's just like, oh, you know, I, I don't think it's just saying like some very kind of like, like stupid and shitty thing of like, oh, well, but she actually wanted like she actually like staged this in some way. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it is supposed to be a real violation. I mean, does, does that well, I mean, what? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll shut up. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I think it's inner. I think it's interesting because because partially I don't know that that was part of my question about the the narrator is that like is is the way that scene is narrated supposed to make you think that in fact things occurred differently than the narrator is now telling you and and i ask that not only because of that scene because that, that i didn't think this the first time reading through but then i get to this other scene where he's with the widow and she and he says you know he's saying all this shit to her like how much she loves her and whatever he's he's over the top romantic with all of the with all of the phantominas mm-hmm. and she says um that she said little in answer to the strenuous pressures which at last he ventured to unfold her but not thinking it decent for the character she had assumed to yield so suddenly and unable to deny both his and her own inclinations, she counterfeited a fainting and fell motionless upon his breast. He had no great notion she was in a real fit, and the room they supped in happened to have a bed in it. 
He took her in his arms and laid her on it, believing that whatever her distemper was, that it was the most proper place to convey her to. He laid himself down by her and endeavored to bring her to herself, and she was too grateful to her kind physician in her returning sense to remove from the posture he had put her in without his leave. So we have this like mixing of mm-hmm. things where it's like she pretends to faint. He knows she's not really fainted. There's a lot going on here. But does he think that he's and do they have sex at any point? Like, how do we know? And are we also supposed to think that while she was pretending to have fainted, that he that he like tried to, I don't know, do do yeah. something? I I, well, I don't th- yeah. know. No, that I yeah, I I think that's that's right, and that like in some sense, what Fantamina's sort of like actual or underlying um, aims are for any of the any of the kind of like encounters that she sort of like uh, sets up or engineers that that is sort of a question apart from what it is that like Beauplazaire thinks that he's that that he or that she's doing right like i mean so when he like that first that first rape with with the fantamina character um he doesn't know that like this is a guise that she's put on or or anything like that that you know and and so like and and yet he still goes you know he still rides right over like what her you know what what her you know what she's saying uh and and and, you know her her, like physical resistance and everything else um the same thing with like uh and i I think that like just the the sort of like equivocal language of that scene you just read resages that like he had no great notion that she was in a real fit well okay what the fuck is that saying uh she's not in real fit right that seems kind of plausible and that like all of these are sort of like like it, you know her her whole identity is so performative and sort of seems so like um uh instrumental uh in a lot of ways but like it doesn't just say that like she wasn't in a real fit. It says that like what it, it it puts it back on the question of like what his perception of this is, which then raises a whole like like how that relates to the actuality of what's happening. Um, in a way that's like super fucked up, right? Like in it, well, uh, and because it, it goes right on after this to say that like y- you might think it's nuts to believe that he could be involved with the same with one woman who looks like four different ladies or whatever the fuck like you might think that's absurd but when a guy gets really horny and somebody's really good at disguise well stuff can happen but it's also like in his ecstasy of horniness he can discern the legitimacy of a faint yeah yeah right right like how (laughs) yeah you know and like with what mental power that he is not uh, yeah, exactly. Way. I mean, he he's he doesn't he can't perceive anything. So how would he know whether this was an actual feign or not? Um, no, and and I think that that okay, like that. You know, I mean, that's the language here is producing exactly that question. Um, and and again, that I think like stands very apart from like what you know. So Fanamina has her own set of aims. Like she has her own set of understandings of like uh, how these encounters are going down. But like, that's a separate question from what Beauplazaire is doing, you know? And like, regardless of what her aims might be, that doesn't, that there, that doesn't like provide any kind of neat moral calculus for what he's doing. And and I think the text is like, yeah, what he's doing is like shitty. What he's doing is like just whatever the fuck he wants, like sexually with these, ver- with these women who he takes to be different women in each case. You know, yes, yeah, and he and and what happens with all of them is he he begins to act like yes, a dick to them, right? Yeah, and and so there's you know there's something there's something there, 
There's also, like, he does always think he's in on the thing that's going on, and yes, he never is. Yeah. With the first, with the first Fantamina, the one who he thinks is a sex worker, he's like, oh, she's concerned about me paying her. She's concerned about me knowing that she's a high-status person. She's concerned about me knowing this, that, and the other. He's always playing guess what I'm thinking, and he's never right. a winner. No, he's not. Um, and... Yeah, so does that, so does that kind of take us then what like what Incognita is doing, which he's like, I'm not taking this mask off, and we have to fuck in the dark, um, right. like, you know that like I don't know, I mean maybe that's on like what she's doing, like part of how she's gaining like a sort of the ultimate or like the the, the biggest victory uh, that we've seen thus far there is that she's kind of throwing that in his face that he doesn't have any idea what the fuck is is happening. Yeah, and it really pisses yeah. him off. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's so let- But yeah, that yeah, but that's like the that's the the moral of the story is that you have to get that to that level of ridiculous yeah. to make this to make this yeah. work. Yeah. And it's it is like men are from Mars, women are from Venus shit in part, but it's like it's also the natural end point of um of women being like fungible, you know? Yes. Yeah, it right. And I mean <sighs> Like you don't need your name, take your husband. Yes, and right, and and like so, her successfully playing with that and redeploying it to her um, advantage locally in kind of individual encounters doesn't ultimately upset the kind of patriarchal, misogynistic ideology discourse that that kind of fungibility is produced by and existing within yes yes because it because it abides by it the does terms. um and and that you know and even i you know that the, the bet i quoted earlier when she was like uh how oh like how much for more fortunate she is than women like within marriages because she basically can she has this power to continually like keep keep the guy horny for her right but by, by taking all these different guises and, and, but that okay so it's like you know in on one sense it acknowledges female desire um it it acknowledges um the kind of power of female desire but in a way that it's like he doesn't have to change who he is you know like he doesn't he doesn't have to put on different disguises he like he like he as the desirable object is always present but the woman has to kind of perpetually find ways to reproduce her desirability yes it's like the thing she's not supposed to have which is desire she has to go through all of the to, like all of this to these great yes. lengths to provoke in in this guy who is like sort of a, he he's like john q horny man like he's not anything you know there's he has no there's nothing to him we at least know she's smart yeah no she's very she's very smart and she has she is a, at least as as uh Capable as Dana Carvey and Master of Disguise, <laughs> uh, which I think I never actually saw that movie, and I think no one like saw that movie, right? Like that. No, no, no. It, all I know is there's a part where he's dressed. Yes, like a yes, yes. So he's like, I want to be the Master of Disguise. I remember that from the trailer. It's like, okay, I've seen it enough. I don't need to see this, but. um but no. no, so let, let so yeah, like uh, let's read that that bit with Incognita where they they fuck in the dark and then he gets super mad because I think it is like I don't know it's it's a pretty hilarious bit. But um, okay, so the so yeah, so like they they you know they they fuck in the mask. He's like, I will never take this mask off. He's like, no, but I'm your slave. And she's like, I don't care. The mask isn't coming off. 
Um, so the hours of repose being arrived, he begged she would retire to her chamber, to which she consented, but obliged him to go to bed first, which he did not much oppose, because he supposed she would not lie in her mask, and doubted not, but the morning's dawn would bring the wish discovery. The two imagined servants ushered him to his new lodging, where he lay some moments in all the perplexity imaginable at the oddness of this adventure. But she suffered not these cogitations to be of any long continuance. She came, but came in the dark. Which, uh, I think I, I don't think that's an inaccurate. I think the the like double entendre there is real. Am I wrong? We can edit this out if that's wrong. But I, is that real? I I have no idea. I think actually. etymologically, I'm right that that is a double entendre. But I'm sure I'm sure you are. No, okay. I'm sure you are. Um, she she came, but came in the dark, which being no more than he expected by the former part of her proceedings, he said nothing of, but as much satisfaction as he found in her embraces. Nothing ever longed for the approach of day with more impatience than he did. At last, it came. But how great was his disappointment when by the noises he heard in the street, the hurry of the coaches and the cries of the penny merchants, he was convinced it was night nowhere but with him. He was still in the same darkness as before, for she had not taken care to fly the windows in such a manner that the least uh, chick was left to let in day. He complained of her behavior in terms that she would not have been able to resist yielding to if she had not been certain it would have been the ruin of her passion. She therefore answered him only as she had done before, and getting out of bed before him, flew out of the room with too much swiftness for him to overtake her if he had attempted it. The moment she left him, two attendants entered the chamber and plucking down the implements which had screened him from the knowledge of that which he so much desired to find out, restored his eyes once more today. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but okay, but yeah. So like, all right, yeah. So why does that piss him off so much? Um, and 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 I, but I think it goes to what you're saying that like he like the fact that he's denied some kind of knowledge uh or or that that like his, that he's not at least fully in control of this encounter is like made explicit to even his dumbass self is a way that like even though he's he even though he's fucked as he wanted to fuck um that is like some sort of threat to like the kind of prerogative and and privilege that it, as a, as a gentleman he expects that he just it just he just like kind of can't like sit with that Yes. Yeah. He's like, he, he's not, he's just, he's not ready for anything serious right now, you know? And, uh, and, and he wants to do what he wants to do, but you know, he wants to do it all on his terms. I think that's like the comment on like shucks about married women in marriage. And that's a contractual arrangement. Like he doesn't want to have that with her. And he also doesn't want to have anything like that with her. And she tells him, she tells him straight up. No, here. And she says, no matter how horny we are, I won't I won't show you my face. And she also says, if he could not content himself with that, what she was willing to reveal and which was the conditions of their meeting, dear as he was to her, she would rather part with him forever than consent to gratify an inquisitiveness, which, in her opinion, had no business with his love. Yeah. So it's like she makes the she makes the terms. And he doesn't like yeah, that. Yeah, no, right. And and I think the 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 your point about the the contract language is 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 really good there, right? Like, yeah, I mean, she, um, he, like this this is the one moment in which like her like so okay so I mean the um like with Celia the maid with the widow bloomer like however we want to read like her relate like her desiring relationship to like how the sexual encounter unfolds um in in this moment with incognita she has like kind of clearly specified the terms under which they will have sex and 
he basically is like stuck abiding by those throughout. Like he never, you know, she does is not, she does not let him see her face. Um, she, you know, she doesn't, she like, basically like she makes him hold to his end of the bargain. Um, and, and that, yeah. And, and he, he feels that as like, well, fuck, I, I did like, I'm not okay with this, you know, um, because he has in every other encounter, at least as he's imagined it, been able to like, kind of, you know, go through them and, you know, get what he wants. Um, sort of without much regard at all to like her um you know what she wants or like what uh, what she is kind of uh what she's saying yeah yeah no he's got no he's got no regard for for her at all and that the way you know that is because because he fucks every yes. one of her yeah you know and like that's what she so there's a scene where she gets pissed that he cheated on her with yeah. her <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> And she's legitimately angry. And it's like, is that, is that like, is that a valid response? And the answer is like, yeah, it is. Cause he, cause, cause he doesn't know, you know, which also is like, okay, so then why doesn't she just, why does she need to be no face person? Like, why couldn't she just endlessly swap any fit, like any face out? And this is the last, this is the last one before she's revealed to him by being pregnant as, you know, like, there's been something going on that's that's the end she she doesn't do the thing she's done and it doesn't work and she could have just shown but she could have just yeah. shown her face so like what what the fuck like what i, I i'm yeah baffled. i mean I, and i want to say that what's happening is is the underscoring the kind of like the sort of not like the economy of knowledge um as like a central pillar on kind of sexist patriarchal discourse right it's like basically like what what would prevent a woman who has had sex outside of marriage from continuing to kind of you know at the, uh, in, in her social sphere or, or what have you has to do with like the way in which knowledge about her condition her virtue circulates so if she denies the world that knowledge and partially by by blankness right by not by you know by obscuring her identity and not really having uh, a recognizable identity that she denies the kind of, you know she denies the patriarchy that knowledge that would allow them to then inscribe her as like a fallen woman or a or a, or, or a woman who has lost her virtue um and as such that then she can sort of uh, I mean, I think it's the ending makes clear and we should get to the ending um, that she can't continue that forever, but it at least offers like a very kind of like fungible space of suspension under which she can. Yeah. I mean, have these desires, have these, you know, kind of sex fantasies, live, live them out in a way that like once that knowledge economy starts to come back down on her, um, it that, that those possibilities end very quickly. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I think that's totally, yes, that, sounds totally right to me like i think that there's a reading that you're giving that's convincing to me that this is this is liberatory in some way that like this is this is taking a different kind of control i guess from her i i think also the the interesting thing is that it's it's about humiliating him yes like it's about making it's about making him admit that he'd fuck someone who he doesn't know what their face looks like because that's what she wants. Yeah. And the, the, that goes off the way that she wants it to. So she says no to that and she's, and, and, and yeah. it's no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it's sort of, it is making him 
like live exist within the kind of most sort of like depraved version of the kind of rakish man that even though like okay so like would that be a huge deal in this kind of like you know misogynistic society um maybe not but it's still like you're not there's no version of gentlemanliness where it's like yes definitely go out and fuck people that you have no idea like that's not it you know what so she's so she's like making him be like as depraved as like we know him to be you know what i mean like um, yeah yeah, she's proving it. She's proving it the only way she can without yes, revealing exactly. herself. Um, but yeah, so I so the idea yeah, uh, is she punished? Uh, is she not punished? Uh, like the ambiguity there, like because I will say, like the the um, okay, so she has the kid, but the kid's quickly shipped off. She's sent to a convent where no one knows her, and I mean, you can certainly read that as like, okay, well, convent. She's a nun now, uh, you know. So she's like, no, there is no kind of sexual life for her after this. But you could also read it as like in the amatory fiction way, she gets sent to this sexy, illicit con. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and it doesn't like, I don't know. It's just, it's so like, it's such a kind of throwaway few lines and it's left so indeterminate that I do kind of feel like it's not, it's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. Like moral scolds, like that, you know, we're going to, we're going to make sure she gets her comeuppance, but we're not really going to give you that much to hang your hat on that. Like she actually did get uh comeuppance. Right. Yes. There's a lot. So there's a lot going on here. Also because so she realizes she's pregnant and the reason why she can't get an abortion is because her mom yes, has showed yes, up. Yes, that's a right. And her mom is the one who and she's like, well, she still could have figured a way out of this, de- you know, uh delivered without the mom being around, but you know, stuff happened early. So she winds up going into labor mm-hmm. at a ball, and then the mother calls in Beau Plazer and is like, Listen, you you got it wet with my kid and now you're gonna pay the piper buddy then fantamina confesses and the mom is like well actually it's her fucking fault and she's gotta and she's gotta go to the convent but also her and the mom decide no we're not giving the kid to to beau plazer like he says he wants it they're like no yeah yeah right so there's some collusion between yeah, the two of right. them. You no, know? yeah, like, you're right. It's like it's not. It, it, it's not just a, like I was wrong. Like it's not just a matter of like oh the kid has conveniently gotten rid of, so it's not something that she has to like worry about. It's like no, like the, the like the, the mom and she keep like the the kind of matriarchal structure kind of keeps control of the like the the the, the, pro- the products of this um, and and denies the kind of masculine that. Um, but I, I think that was like sort of a long way around to saying like I think you're right about the monastery thing, you know. I think because it seems it's like it's very it's very yeah. thin, you know. It's it, this. Uh, she's I don't know. She she can fuck there. Yeah, I have no, me, no, me 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 too. I mean, I think I think I kind of I think that uh, I think that the amatory novel is asking you to to very much think think that. Um, so I yeah like. I don't, I don't know. Like, sounds like you're about to do a dipshit both sides thing. Uh, but, but like, I, but I, like, I do think, so I, like, I, my read, and tell me if this overlaps with yours or not, is that like, this is not a reactionary story that is just about like, well, we're, you know, like, oh, don't, don't you have dirty thoughts, young lady, or we're going to, you know, you have to go live in France. Uh, right. <laughs> like, it, it's like it's it's thinking about okay so like these are the sort of oppressive structures uh, under which women um of of all class positions but you know i mean i think it's about you know a noble woman live under 
What are some ways that we can imagine in which these could be redeployed to uh, open up a space for female sexuality, uh, open up a space for, uh, you know, fucking outside these very kind of rigid boundaries, Um, but also like we're not going we're we're going to acknowledge like the limits against which those like strategies of rebellion that we're that we're imagining here butt up against those right so it's like you know it like the male gaze is still like mediating so much of this um there is like kind of a, a clock or a time limit on like how long will this strategy actually be effective but in the interim you know, we get to imagine these other ways of being and these other ways of relating um, and relating sexually that uh, are not available in the kind of authorized sort of emergent bourgeois gendered world. Yeah, they're not. Yes. I think the ambiguity of the whole fucking thing, it leads me to wonder, uh, all I can think about is that that saying uh, you shouldn't roll like don't don't roll around with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. <laughs> I don't think I know the saying. <laughs> and, and so and so what I was thinking about is like, OK, so that seems to apply to this, but it's never clear who no, the pig is. No. So I think you're right that it is this like there's something about it that's not closed down and reactionary and and incurious and all of these things that are just really exhausting to read about in a lot of these seduction and punishment novels but it's also like you're you still end up like everyone's covered in mud at the end oh yeah you know and it's like if if we have a woman who's trying to figure out how to keep a man interested and the bottom line is there's no yeah. fucking way. Right. And yes, exactly. And and I do think like while it might not be ultimately saying that this that this sort of like strategy or imaginative strategy of Fantamina's is what's what will upset uh, totally upset or topple, you know, patriarchy. Like patriarchy itself is coming under, I think, very pointed critique, right? Like, I mean, to your point about like no one isn't covered in mud at the end. Like, it's not, you know, like the, the fact that like she get, you know, ultimately gets punished by this system. I don't think that we're then supposed to be like, and yes, it is like ethically and morally right that this is what happens. It's just kind of say like, yeah, this is. I mean, this is the way power works in this system, and so you know what I mean. So it's <laughs> like it's kind of it's it's more like sort of like a, a, a real politic outcome than a like return to like a and yes like young ladies who do this will be punished and that's a good thing and there's a yes and it's like there's this punishment yeah so like how does the kid figure in also like after the kid is born he's coming around every day asking how her how her vitals are and what humors are out of turn you know like he's more concerned than he's he's more concerned than ever with her and the mom has to step in and say, yeah. like, fuck off, buddy. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, that? no, it's a it's it's a weird it's a weird ending. Um but but I do think it's an ending that makes me not necessarily have to hate it. You know what I mean? Like it's like it, it's yes. Like I, I'm not yes. convinced that it's a it's a good ending, but it's also like it, like if this just riled up with like some sort of like Christian morale, like you know, very misogynistic kind of Christian morality imposed on it, I'd be like, all right, well, fuck this, we don't need to read this. Uh, but it doesn't, and I and I think the way it doesn't do that, it's like it, you know, it there's it, it's it's as I say, like every time I try to figure this thing out, I don't quite feel like I have it, um, which is a mark of something that's actually a really compelling object to me. Oh yeah. No, it's super interesting. Like there's every, every single part of this is 
absolutely fascinating. There's like a million things we could still yeah. talk about that that we just can't. Um, but anyway, no, this was great. And I think uh, I don't know that I'm any closer to solving it, but uh, it was it was it was fun to talk about. <laughs> cool. Um, so do, do you have questions for us as we wrap up? I do. I have some questions. And they're just they're just kind of just a couple normal questions to figure out which Fantamina you are. Okay. Okay. Um, you, this is only only four questions because we can we, we can figure this out pretty fast. Okay. Uh, put yourself into the into the mindset. Get develop Fantamina mindset. You have to call in sick to work. Okay. But you're faking it. <laughs> Okay. A malingerer. You're a malingerer. <laughs> you're malingering. Okay. And putting aside the fact that this is deeply unethical. Okay. And if there is not a river of blood rocketing out of your asshole, you are not sick. You're stealing company time. Time theft. Time theft. Time theft. Uh, we, uh, there is absolutely nothing unethical about that. Better than that totally endorses <laughs> uh, abusing your shitty company's sick leave policy. <laughs> Solidarity, comrades. Solidarity, comrades. I was playing a character. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, when you do this, okay, so you call in sick to work. What's your MO when you call? Choice number one is <coughs> I'm sick. <laughs> choice <laughs> choice number two is I fell and broke my leg on the way to Holland uh, where my husband died and he and he I gotta get my money from his friend and uh and yeah I'm a I'm a I'm just a lady in trouble and so I can't come to work today uh number three is you work in a haunted house you don't have to do this shit you simply send in a friend with your Halloween mask problem solved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, the fourth choice is just uh, don't call, don't show, never go to work, disappear, start a new life. Oh man. I, uh, so, okay. So like my, my Emma, like what's, what's my fantasy or what's my actual MO? Like, I would like to be D I really would. Cause like, I just, <laughs> I, I, I advise it like, yeah, how great would it be to just give that few fucks, uh, but unfortunately I was interpolated from an early and I'm, I'm working on it. This is part of my praxis is working on this, getting outside <laughs> of being interpolated as a, as a producer. Um, I think it would be the first one. I'd be like, I got, Oh fuck. Um, I don't know, like <laughs> dengue fever. So it'll cl No, no. I, it's the kind that clears up like in 20, I'll be back to work tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like, I got the plague. No, no. It's the 24 hour bug, right? Like the, you know, I'm just bleeding out my eyes for, for a short period. So a, it'll only be one day. It's weird, yeah. but it's totally accurate. A, true. Yeah, a, a, I guess. Okay, we well, gotcha. A, okay. So, so this is a personal question. I hope you don't mind. Mm -hmm. I hope it's not too impertinent. Um, what's what's your type? Number one, horny dumbasses. <laughs> Number two, sexually active dipshits. <laughs> Number three, my fiance's name is Stu Boner Stupid Guy, and when we get married, I'll be Mrs. Boner Stupid Guy. <laughs> or four, John Doe. <laughs> oh, 
good. I I'm glad I'm glad there wasn't an option where you'd be like sapiosexual, right? Like the, <laughs> the first three of these are like kind of anti sapiosexual, right? Like uh, oh my god, this is a pro polyamory story. Yes, yeah, no, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> uh, Judd, like okay, uh, I don't know, I. Uh, Horty dipshit, horty dipshit rolls off the tongue the best, and I think the first three are the same. So I'll say, I'll say A, horny dipshit. Okay, all right, I love it. Okay, uh, here's another one. This <laughs> is personal question too. Uh, what are your feelings on role play? Number one, unhand me, good sir. I'm the secret king of Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> no- <laughs> Number two. Um, but a simple country tit farmer. <laughs> Number three. Hey, I'm uh, I'm 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 here to deliver a pizza. Uh, or number four, French maid. <laughs> well, Katie, as you know, I did come up country down in Delaware <laughs> on the on the eastern shore. Uh, so I'm just I'm just I'm just a little old country boy. So it's number two. You're, so, you're a simple country tit farmer. And, and, here, and here I was talking all kinds of shit about the not sexiness of overalls back in our 1984 episode. I know. You're going to have to retract <laughs> some statements. <laughs> and here's your final question. What is your favorite movie? Number one, 50 First Dates. Oh number two, Clockwork Orange. <laughs> number three, Big game on today. That means any sport. <laughs> or number four, two girls, one cup. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Uh, this is like our 28 millionth episode or something of the first two girls, one cup <laughs> reference. So that's good. Hey. That's good. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, uh, man. Uh, I, if I say clockwork arts, that's like, that's a little too dark for the purpose of this, this game, I think. Uh, but like I, and I, I, the, the, I'm not just big game. Fuck that. Um, 50 first dates, <laughs> which I am going to pick. I just have to say that is a fucked up movie. Like in a way that I don't oh. think any of the like contemporary reception of it when it came out was people were like, Oh wow. Adam Sandler, you know, people said he was a dumbass with Billy Madison, but he's finally told a heartwarming tale. It's like of what, <laughs> like a complete violation of consent over and over again. I was just like, yep. it's like, that is a fucked up movie. Um, so I'll pick it that. It is a fucked up movie. Okay. <laughs> so I'll pick that. <laughs> no, pick that one. Okay. So again, I'm going to fire up, I'm going to fire up Hal. Mm-hmm. Hal, calculate the score, Hal. Hal, open the pod bay door, Hal. Hal. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I can't I can't think of any more of these. <laughs> okay, you are rural rustic. Ah. So I'm Celia. You're Celia, okay. the rural rustic. Okay. Yeah, that's you. All right. So enjoy that. Roll, roll around and dirt and shit and i'll get a uh, you know nice sexy bonnet and uh pin pin my yeah. pin my petticoat up re- revealing my ankle <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> don't take it too far now 
<laughs> All right, Celia. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Celia's the best. I mean, they're, well, eh, the Widow Bloomer's not terrible. Uh, Phantom. Well, no, I mean, actually, all of the characters are fine. Uh, Phantom and her, like the the the, the lady, probably sucks because she's an aristocrat, but the rest of them are fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rural rustic is not so bad, and and as you say, a simple country boy from Delaware, it fits you. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. Well, that that was fun as always. Um, thank thank you for that. Um, this has been better red than dead. You can find Megan on Twitter at Tusslersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Better Red Pod, spelled R-E-A-D, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if the email is a carefully constructed performance aimed at keeping your true identity a secret. Uh, <laughs> uh, that should invite some, some interesting ones. Um, our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Uh, please rate, review us, and subscribe. Um, next week, Katie and I are going to be talking about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, um, and we're going to be talking about the lottery after that. So thanks, comrades. <laughs> <laughs>